Hi, welcome to the fifth episode of Afghanistan Simplified. This is Keith Lemke. In this episode, I'm going to start putting together what we've been talking about in the last three. One is the the religious aspect of the culture of Afghanistan. The second is the ethnicity or the aspect of the ethnic competition within Afghanistan. The third is, of course, the evolution of the government. In the last three episodes, I covered each one of those in detail, kind of a history as a single, as a single thread of continuity. We're going to start putting them together now. And as you put them together, you see that's, what, that's why it seems so complex to everybody who's trying to figure out Afghanistan. It's not just Afghanistan. It's anywhere in the world where you have a very progressive um, or socialist, before it was socialist communist, now it's a very globalist, progressive uh, type of government being inserted into a country that is a, based on a tribal and a religious a conglomeration of values. And so everywhere that that is happening, you start seeing the same thing. It just manifests itself slightly differently. And now as you start combining the cultural values, which in Afghanistan is religion and the ethnic traditions, into a nationalistic value, you try to, what happens is you either got to get rid of the tribal ethnic traditions, and everybody's got to be under generally a, a, uh, a one-state theory. And, and that, by the way, is, is the postmodernist you know, thought about power, is that, um, and that's what the postmodernist uh, theory is, what Marx is, the, the foundation of Marxism. <clears throat> and it's based on the concept that everything is a struggle, and it's a struggle between groups of people. And one group are are going to be the dominating group, and the other group, of course, are going to be the picked-on group, the exploited group. And the word that's normally used is oppressors and the the oppressed, right? And so you always have to have this struggle. Because that's what life is. It's nothing but a struggle. That's Marxism 101. Now, Marx put it on class. Um, in the United States, we're putting, you know, now it's race. You know, it's the white is the oppressors and everybody else is the oppressed. Uh, before that, it was uh, on uh, uh, sexes, right? Males are the, dom- or the dominant force. They're the oppressors and the females are the oppressed. And so this continuation of struggles is what causes, in, in uh, Marx's term, is, as you continue with these struggles, uh, you eventually end up a world where you, you've, you've equalized everything until the point where there is no struggle, even though, according to Marx, or actually the, pro, the postmodernists, there always has to be a struggle. And if, you're, if you believe in that theory, then you always have to have a struggle. And even where there isn't a struggle, you've got to go out and make a struggle. And that's the problem with the theory. The problem with the theory is there is never, ever, ever a time where you don't have a struggle. And therefore, you're always at war. And at any given time, you want to be the dominant side. You, the, who, who are fighting in the name of oppression want to be the oppressor. And if you were the oppressor before, now you're the oppressed, and now you're going to become fighting to become the oppressor while the other side is going to, at some point, decline to be the oppressed again. And and that's actually the real evolution that happens. And and so that's why the theory fails. That's why it's a horrible theory. It has never worked anywhere in the world that I can tell, either through history or through practical experience. Every country we've ever gone into to fight for the oppressed, all we've done is put the oppressed into a position where they have become the oppressors. And then 10 years later, the people who they are oppressing now becomes the oppressed, and then they become the freedom fighters to become the oppressors again. And so if you want, if you want that for the United States, continue going with the postmodernist theory, and continue going with the uh, and believing in this uh, critical, um, the the 
the critical theory, which in, in, in critical theory, all that is, is it, it adds very nicely into um, the postmodernist theory in the sense that um, you, one group is, is going to be the oppressors. So, you know, critical race theory, it's the, it's, it's the whites, even though slavery was not a, was around long time, probably before whites ever existed. Um, but that's we throw fact when when you're talking about postmodernists, they throw facts out the window. The facts have nothing to do. History has nothing to do with the issue. It's just currently who's the oppressed and who's the oppressors. And so um, that's Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a perfect example if you believe in those type of theories. So, if you recall, you know, the history of the ethnicity, the Pashtun dominated uh, this part at the Afghanistan, that part of Central Asia, the middle Central Asia around the Hindu-Hush for centuries. The minority tribes, um, of which there are about 11, but three primary ones, the Hazar, the Tajik, and the, the, the Uzbekis. Uh, they... Uh, you know, they they want equity, and so they use the kindness movement for equity up front, and that didn't turn out too well for them because they also want to maintain their Islamic values. They want to live under an Islamic law, Islamic values. And they also, and that's Sharia, by the way, Islamic law is Sharia. And there's lots of different jurisprudences of Sharia. It isn't just one. You're not just, you know... Die Hard, uh, Hanbalius, which is from Saudi Arabia, where you believe everything liturgically perfect with the Holy Quran and the Sunnahs and the Hadiths, because it's not that simple. Um, the Holy Quran has lots of ga- as a law book has lots of gaps and doesn't really explain how to accommodate time. So therefore, there's different schools of thought on how to do that. Those different schools of thought evolved into different schools of jurisprudence or the practice of law. And those different schools of jurisprudence exist today. And they compete with each other, sometimes physically, I mean, with like shooting at each other, and sometimes peacefully within, within the madrasas or within the, within the recruiting, who can recruit more people. And so, and ultimately, that's what it is. It's about recruiting. And, and whether you recruit with a dollar, you recruit with the word or theory, or you recruit with the sword. You know, it's three different ways. Um, but as, so, and then, of course, the government where we have um, small elites who've come in to Afghanistan and, and it's a very small group and we've also homegrown them in the last 20 years we built these elites they're young young people in the military who have decided that they're they're going to clean up the country once and for all well that means you got to get rid of all the Pashtun fighters against them right and it all ends up being Pashtu because they want to be the dominant guys so they're fighting they become the oppressors now the Taliban were the oppressors, and now we've built this whole class of, of, of elites and gave them a wonderful army, gave them modern technology, gave them all the help in the world, gave them all the money and guns in the world, and now they're very slowly becoming the oppressors, where they're using that technology to kill enough of the Pashtudio bond where then they'll become you know, the masters of Afghanistan. And then once they're the oppressors, you know... Then the oppressed, which will be the Deoband Pashtu from the south, in the next 20 years will gain a lot of sympathy from other Pashtu or other countries, and then eventually they're going to get the technology and they're going to get the help and they're going to get the superpower, giving them money, and then they're going to come and they're going to get revenge on all the oppressors, the current people that we are building to be in power now. And when they get thrown out, their families will end up leaving Afghanistan too. So the cycles just well, all we do is continue the cycle based on the postmodernist theory, right? So anyway, so all three of those really come to a head: the religious part, the ethnic part, and the 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 government part. Start coming to head in 1972 when the monarch is actually thrown out of power. Uh, Daoud, through his 
cousin, the kings are here out of power. Dehud was his cousin, um, and thought that he could build a republic. He wanted he wasn't he wasn't shooting for a communist country per se, and he wasn't shooting for a a democracy like the United States. He's shooting for a democratic republic. Um, but um, he thought he could modernize faster than King Zahir could. And he thought he could do it better, right? So that's why that's why he switched out. Because after World War II, the king in Afghanistan was, you know, they, they were trying to change. And in, actually in 1965, they rewrote the constitution to be a much more liberal constitution than it had been before. But, you know, the, the dudes, um, in dude's mind, it wasn't fast enough. So he, he the, the king went on a trip to uh, Europe and dude took power. It didn't allow the king back. So once he was in power, he had a problem though. And, and the problem is, is this, the country was still Islamic, primarily and still tribal and so he's because he threw the king out he was losing support from a lot of the tribes a lot of the pashtun tribes that had supported the king if you recall the pashtuns were Barakzai pashtun uh, and they had been for over a century and so there a lot of a lot of the pashtun tribes in the south had they were patroned to them the kingdom and that kept them slightly advantaged over the minority tribes, primarily from the north. And so he was afraid he was going to lose their support. And he was losing their support. And so he had to do some things. First of all, he needed to do some organizing because he was changing, uh, he was going to change the culture of Afghanistan. So he used, uh, for instance, the Halki, the newly, uh, well, the, the growing Halki communists, Halki side of the communist party, it's the People's Party, Halki's Peoples, uh, which had, was created actually in the 50s and had, had evolved and, and, and is actually an Air Force colonel, uh, who, Kadir, who was behind the evolution of the, or the development of the first communist party in Afghanistan. And so he used the young, uh, the the, the Muslim youth organization, uh, you always go to the youth. If you ever want to change culture, everybody always goes to the youth, and it always turns out badly. Uh, we're doing the same thing in Afghanistan today. We've gone to the youth. We've replaced all the old gen- – we have, we have colonels that are 26 years old because they speak English and they're familiar with technology. But they don't have that, that ideological foundation, that foundation of, of political or social foundation that's going to guide them through – the next 30 to 40 years of power without abusing it. And that's where we always fail. The communists failed the same way. They created young colonels, uh, young people in power, young politicians who really had no, had no foundation of, of theory within their, within their knowledge base or within their heart. And, and thus, what they really did was they outpaced the empathy for their own society. And so to the point where, you know, they they felt like they could force with guns their society to change cultures. And we're we're going to see the same problem with the current government of Afghanistan, the current leaders that are in in the armies of in the government of Afghanistan that the United States agencies and DOD put into power simply because they like they they speak English and they're uh, they know technology pretty well, and therefore they're they're good Muslims in our mind. And so, as we put them into power, well, the same thing was happening in the communist days. We put the communists put those guys kinds of power. They abused the power that they had against their people. Well, the Halki was a breeding ground of that. The Halki party, the communist party, it was the young, uh, the the young Muslim or the youth Muslim Muslim youth organization, right? So these these are young uh, Pashto uh, generals, kids. They they learn Russian. They like the Russians. The Russians like them. Um, they get education opportunities to Russia. Uh, they get education opportunities to other places as well, but primarily Russia. And uh, India too. And if you recall, India was communist in those days. 
and so uh in in so they jump on board with Taraki Taraki or Daoud uses those guys as his community organizations right they become they become the antifa um of him of Daoud's push you know and it just antifa helps the democratic party um well, I should say the Democratic Party of the United States helped Antifa uh, take the election from uh, from Trump, right? Create chaos in the streets and the president gets blamed for it. That helps you get elected. Well, that's what Daoud did. He, he wanted support, so he used uh, the Kindness Party, the young, the Muslim youth, to do things um, to lead... Uh, to, to lead uh, uh, demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations. And it's fascinating, they called them peaceful demonstrations, but they were very violent. They destroyed lots of things in Kabul. Or they uh, they would go into Hazara neighborhoods and just trash uh, Hazara neighborhoods um, in the name of uh, social justice, right? And so, and he used them for that um, and to get people to support him. Because what he could do is, and he would come down and swoop down as a savior because he was the only person who could stop them. Of course, they were working for him. Um, and, of course, his policies weren't working out so well because while he was trying to push the country into a, a, a liberal democratic state, right, and he was using money from both the Soviet Union and the United States because Afghanistan had no industry, and had a very low GDP, so he was using donor money from those two countries to build projects, uh, to build, you know, for instance, the airport down in Kandahar was the was probably the best airport in the world at one time for for uh, propeller driven airplanes, right? And uh, the highway, there's one highway that goes all the way around. Afghanistan, the half of it in the south was built by the United States and the half to the north was supposed to be built by the Soviet Union. So he, he was using the Soviet Union and the United States against each other, uh, Cold War style, to get money from both. He was using the Halki Party, or the young Muslims from the Halki Party, the Kindness Party, as where he, where he needed people to go to do nefarious stuff, raise chaos, raise, uh, you know, get people's attention, Right. Well, in 1972, he was still losing power. So between 72 and 78, uh, when he would finally be, uh, be expelled from power, um, he was afraid he needed a struggle because the problem is he was being blamed for all the bad things in the country. Because the people, 99% of the people didn't want to be a liberal progressive state and they wanted to maintain their social values but he was pushing a hard centralized power, uh, liberal constitution uh, agenda. So there was a lot of problems in the country, and so he needed he needed the, he needed a common enemy, and, and so he pulled a pulled a, a uh, pulled a, uh, a a lesson or a, um, a uh, trick that he you know from the postmodernist theorists, right? So. Communism 101, if you need a struggle, make a struggle. So that's what he essentially did. So, and it was pretty easy because if you, if you go back to um, the 70s in the Middle East and in Central Asia, you see several things going on. You see huge Islamic movements. And we call them extremists, but I, I, I call them literal the originalists, uh, Islam, Muslims were going back to the original um, ideas within the Quran and, and within the Sunnah and the Hadith. Um, and, and they were going back to the basics of it, right? And of course, for the moderate person who became um, very comfortable of avoiding some of those harder things to do in the Quran and the Sunnah, you know, they're, now they're extremists, right? So the extremists, um, but they were taken back to countries, you know. There was a huge counter-movement against communism uh, from the originalist Muslims uh, in in places like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, um, or Syria, 
Um, of course, you see the, the, the conflict going on in the Middle East between uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, Jordan, um, there, there, was a, there was an actual attack on the Jordan's kingdom. And of course, kingdoms are not uh, the same as a Islamic country because within Islam, there can be no king. The only king is God. And so, um, and then you see uh, Saudi Arabia, who's a kingdom, trying to maintain their power by appeasing the Hanbali ulama, uh, which happens still today, right? So they had to they appease the Hanbali ulama, who would otherwise get rid of the king. Um, and so they continue. Uh, so there's a lot of Islamic. Uh, reaction to communism in the Middle and Central Asia. Well, Daoud sees this and thinks, okay, um, and, and plus he was looking at a, a group of uh, Muslims that was starting to meet every week. It was, uh, it was the Muslim Youth Club. It was head, headed by a guy by the name Rabani um, who, had, who eventually became... Um, the leader of the Javid Islami Mujahideen Party, right, which was basically Tajik, it's from the north of Kabul, but it, it would gain lots of other support from other tribes. But, um, and so he started under Javid Islami from Pakistan, who paid him money to come to Afghanistan, come back to Afghanistan. He's going to school in Egypt at the time. And so he started uh, this club, and plus he was a professor at the Kabul University and the Muslim College, which was paid by Saudi Arabia, by the way. And that college was. Um, in typical Afghan style at that time, Daoud had made deals with different countries, and different countries paid for different colleges within the university. And so he uh, he was looking at this, and... Of course, Islam and communism or, or, or liberal progressive or liberal uh, democratic values, what we would call liberal democratic values, aren't the same. Um, and only one set of laws can be the real set of laws for any country, right? So in the Constitution, for instance, in, in our Constitution, um, it wouldn't be acceptable for a true Muslim to live under our uh, under the U.S. Constitution. Um, without, I mean, from certain, well, I won't say true Muslim. For Muslims from certain fiqhs of Islam, certain schools of jurisprudence, they couldn't compromise. Is either by the Quran and Sunnah and Hadiths, or it's wrong, you know. And that, by the way, that's what the Holy Quran says. So. I can't tell you that they're bad Muslims because they're actually good Muslims because they're following exactly what the Quran says. Theoretically, the bad Muslims would be the ones blown off the Quran and just kind of doing what you know, figuring out theories to accommodate what they think they want to do and still be a Muslim. And so, and that's the debate, you know, um, within within the Islamic community. I can come up with all kinds of theories. To, you know, it's, it's kind of like the United States and the Constitution. When abortion came up, you know, Road versus Wade, it ended up being interstate commerce is what the decision in the Constitution was about. There, enough justices thought that they wanted abortion for a lot of different reasons. One of them actually was for, uh, for being able to control the population from the government. So, if you, I mean, I mean, that's... That's kind of scary in itself, but um, several of the justices in the Constitution at the time they, they wanted abortion, right? Because it women's rights, women should have rights, and, women, and and at that time there were a lot of studies out, and, and an unmarried woman has a unfair disadvantage in life, and there's no no way, shape, or form about it, and therefore. If you want equality of women, you got to get rid of kids, and then you can have equality of women. I mean, it's, you know, those nasty kids are the big issue, right? If you have kids, somebody has to take care of the kids, and it's going to be unfair if a couple breaks up, if one of the two are going to be burdened with the children. So, 
Um, and normally the women would end up with the children because, frankly, they have a nature that's more caring towards kids. They're, you know, they're, they're, I mean, that's been their, their role in genetics within the mammal I mean, within all mammals, forever. I mean, you go to apes, right? You go, you go watch apes in the jungle. Uh, it's the mothers who take care of the kids and not the fathers, right? And I, I, don't, I don't think you can call that a construct. I don't think you can call that an artificial construct developed by the males to dominate over the females. It's just kind of evolved that way. And that's the same with most all mammals, right? And if human beings are mammals, then that evolutionary tract is the same with humans because humans are, I, I think they still are, unless we've changed those, that language as well. They're still mammals as well. So, um, well, the people in the countryside in Afghanistan didn't want that theory. They, they wanted to live by the traditional family values of the tribal society and Islamic, their particular fake of Islam, Daoud, and so they were rebelling, so Daoud needed, a, a, uh, needed some kind of struggle, so he thought, hey, I'll just have a struggle against the Muslims. I mean, after all, all i got to do is get everybody to believe that they're trying to do, take over the country, and then I'll get the population with me against them. And so there was, a, there was a, in 1973, right after he took power, there was supposedly a... Uh, there was an assassination attempt on Dawood. Um, now, the problem is the more research I've done into it, the more shady this whole thing becomes because um, as, as if, if you go back to the documents, um, it didn't look like the Muslims actually did it. It kind of looked like the young... The, 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 uh, it kind of looked like a staged event from young kids who were acting like they were Muslims. You know, maybe like the young... Uh, kindness movement, maybe, the, the, you know the the the, the kindness youth movement. Would would they act like they're Muslims to do a a to 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 put on a staged assassination that failed, of course, uh, and then blame it on the Muslims? So then they could attack the Muslims in the university, and they could attack the Muslims in the youth club, and they could force all the Islamic leaders out of Kabul. Could that have happened? Well, actually, if you look at the evidence, it looks more like that happened than the Muslims trying to kill Daoud. Um, so um, it's kind of, it, it's, it's a shaky ground there because the evidence doesn't point really hard one way or the other. And, if, and frankly, if, if the communists, if the Halkis had done it, they would have covered up all the evidence anyhow. And if the Muslims would have done it administratively, there probably wouldn't have been enough to record it. But anyway, that event set off where Daoud now had um, the authority and the right to attack the Muslim leaders who theoretically attacked them. And so they, they started taking people who had been part of the, the, youth, the Muslim youth club, they started hunting them down. Well, those people left the country. They, they were running. Um, most of them went to Pakistan because they were Sunni. Um, and if you're a Sunni, you're not going to go to Iran, Iran Shiism. Um, if at that particular time, you're not going to go north because that was all Russia. The USSR, who was allied with the government, had Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and all the stands. That was all part of the USSR. You weren't going to go to India because that was kindness. Uh, you weren't going to go to China because that was kindness. So the only place you could go was Pakistan. And so that's how they ended up in Pakistan. Um, and, of course, in Afghanistan, their families and their, their friends were also being hunted down by the government as well and thrown in jail and sometimes assassinated. Mujahideen, who was uh, an elder at that time, an older uh, ulama, who had been preaching anti-communists since the early 50s in Afghanistan, all over the South. He'd go to uh, mosque, to mosque, to mosque. Well, he lost, he lost his whole family. Uh, his whole family was hunted down by the government, and they were trying to get at him through them. 
and and he ended up in Pakistan. He was trying to unite all these uh, these young Muslims that had come leaders that had come out of Kabul, uh, out of the intellectual side of Islam uh, or the Islamic movement in in Afghanistan. He was uniting them in Pakistan, or trying to. So they all left. Um, Daoud continued pumping both the USSR and the United States for money all the way up until 1978. Uh, and by this time, the Halki, the Kaimist Party in Afghanistan had grown two parties, grown to a Halki Party, which was the People's, and the Parcham Party, which is Banner. Um, and, and they had they were competitors within the Kaimist Party. Uh, meanwhile, you had the Islamic leaders that had been pushed down into Pakistan. Well, they were starting to gain power because their qualms, the people that they represent, the tribes that they represent, the type of, or the Muslims that they represent, still did not want a liberal democracy, and they're certainly not going to want communism, which is going to come next. So they're still unhappy. Most of the majority of the Afghans were still unhappy out in the countryside. The people in the city were doing really well because all the money come from the United States and the USSR was going to the city. So, you know, the elites, the, the 2% or the 1%, 0.02%, they're getting extremely wealthy. Um, kind of like what's happening now. And so... Uh, and plus the army's being built up a little bit, and all the old monarch generals from the monarch, all the old guys, right? They're being pushed aside by all these young, new guys, communists, who know popular, who knew technology better and are uh, more uh, ambitious and, and more energetic. And So those guys, the army's being replaced by those guys at this time, too. And, of course, they're loyal to Dou to a certain extent, but they're really loyal to the party. Well, this continued happening. I mean, so the, the struggle between the, the government and Islamists continued. Islamists were, uh, they were the oppressed now, right? And, the, and up until 1978, well, in 1978, the communists decided they really didn't need Daoud anymore. I mean, they didn't need him. They, they were now his major source of manpower and his major source of support, his major source of community organization. In other words, he depended on them to manipulate the, the uh, population um, to keep him in power. Well, they didn't need him, so, you know, they killed him, right? And a guy by the name of Taraki took over. Taraki was a Tajik um, communist uh, who had... Uh, who had been educated in India. He was one of the elites, right? He was one of the 0.02% who had gotten out of the country, got educated, came back. He took power and led the revolution. Uh, and he was a friend of Khrushchev. He talked to the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union didn't want to get actively involved at this time. They were busy. They were, they were already financially strained everywhere else. If you remember in 78, that's 10 years before they would finally dissolve. So Taraki comes in, uh, leads a coup, takes over the government, kills Daoud, all of his family, because you don't want the family existing because that breeds back to revenge. Um, uh, all of Daoud's closest friends and families depart the country. They leave. Uh, Taraki puts in what's called land reforms. The first thing he does is, is starts land redistribution from the rich to the poor. Daoud had actually started that program where they wanted to distribute land to more of the poor, the workers, but he never really got that far. So Taraki takes over, appeases the masses. Remember, the people don't want to live like communists. They want to live like Muslims with tribal traditions, but he appeases them by saying, hey, we're going to give the poor the land that they'd been working for on because up until that time, the Afghan agricultural system was kind of futile in the sense that you had a few very elite people, mainly Popelzai, <laughs> owned most of the land, or the Khans of the different tribes that had given their loyalty to the king, right? So each, each tribe, uh, Ghani's family was one of those, by the way. He was an Ahmadzai. Ahmadzai was one of the Khan families of the Gilzai tribe. 
and they had owned a lot of land. And so that's how Ghani, you know, his family was wealthy. So they, when they left the country, they went to the United States, and that's how he got to go to Colombia and do other things. That's how he became. I mean, he didn't come back to Afghanistan until you know he was the finance deputy of finance a few years ago, and then he became president. So from '72 until you know 2000, whenever he became finance, I think it was around 10 or 11, may have been before then. But he had never been in Afghanistan. Now he's the president of Afghanistan. And so, and that's not abnormal. The rich families left. When the kindness took over, they took their money and they ran because when Taraki took over, he went full-blown kindness. We're going to get rid of the rich families. We're going to redistribute the land. And that's what he did. That's what he tried to do. He used the army to do it. Now, when he came into power, Uzbeks, Hazars, and Tajiks jumped in with him he had, you know, there's a lot of people who joined the the Kaimnis army at that time um, and competing. And the other thing he did was open up more schools. And he did. I mean, in all fairness, as the Kaimnis went, they pushed a lot of money into schools, but they didn't do it necessarily as a way of benefiting the people. What they did is they opened the schools to drive a wedge between the children and their parents' values, Right. And, of course, initially a lot of the tribes, the elders and the cons of the tribes sent their, sent their children to it to compete because in, under the new government, a kindness government, they would have equity. Equity in, in the sense that they could rise up against the, what had been the dominant families, either the very wealthy families or the minority tribes who were patroned by the king to keep power of those tribes, or by the Pashtun um, monarch, the royal families within the Pashtun. So they were, this was equity to them, so they joined. And uh, they, joined, they joined the military, but they didn't necessarily join a communist party because still their root values are tied to Islam and, and tribal. Well, Amin, the second in charge of the Halki party was Amin, uh, the, the, the leader of the party was Taraki. Amin didn't think that Taraki was going fast enough, and so within about nine months, he kills Taraki and takes over. Um, and Amin went full-blown Marxist, and he went, we're going to, you know, if, if a tribal elder or a mullah doesn't, you know, offer his... Um, Loyalty to the government, to the new communist republic, to the new communist constitution. If they don't do that, they're going to be in jail or they'll be killed. Right? That's essentially what his feeling was. You know, either, either vow to the government or we're going to wipe you out. Okay. So um, that didn't go over very well with the population. Uh, it also didn't go really well over with the rank and file of the military who was then told to go march out there and change their mind. Um, all of a sudden, these Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Hazaras who jumped into the, to the military kind of went, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. I, I don't want to change our culture. I just want equity within the government. And, uh, and of course, the propaganda was that, you know, all these people joined the, 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 this new communist movement because they all wanted this communist government, and that's not it at all. They were just looking for equity. Um, and so the army started fractioning when they were being told to go, you know, beat up their own people or, or go kill mullahs or go hunt down uh, elders because they went and vowed to the government. And so they broke up. Um, normally they would do it to other tribes, though. They, you know, like the Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Havari had no problem going down the Pashtu areas and forcing those people to submit. But now when they had to go to their own areas in the north and force their people to submit, that's when it fractured them. And so um, the army started fractioning under Amin. The Soviet Union was like, oh, my God, uh, rev this revolution can't go backwards. So they had to do something. So they sent in uh, the Spetsnets, uh, assassinated Amin and put in a Parcham party leader. Carmel was his name. Um, both 
Amin and part and Carmel, by the way, were were actually educated in the United States. Um, and good kindness, you know. When I think uh, Amin was from Colombia, and Carmel may have been from Berkeley. But I'm not sure about that, but they were both good kindness, and and so in Carmel also studied the Soviet Union. So anyway, they put Carmel into power. He slows up the Marxist stuff. Slows it up, doesn't do away with it. They just become much more. Um, they they still want to separate the people from their culture, but they want to do it in a way that the people don't really understand that what's happening, right? Subtly. And so they. Uh, but by then it's too late, right? Um, the damage had been done. Uh, the population knew what was going on on both sides, both the North and the South. So the, the people who had supported the communist uh, government because they wanted equity, half of the population, right, all of a sudden said, okay, we know what you really are. So they fracture into different Mojadeen groups. You had the Wadat uh, uh, was the Hazaras, from the Hazarajat, which is Bamiya today, aligned with uh, Iran, because they're Shiites. You know, you had uh, the Jumbushi Mili from uh, uh, near uh, Mazar Sharif in the north part, uh, commanded by a guy by the name of, D- or led by a name, guy by the name of Dustum, who would eventually, that the organization would eventually form, representing the Uzbeks. You had the T- uh, Jamiri Islami that would form, and that would originally represent uh, the Tajiks, um, and then you had down in the south, you had Hizbi, uh, or um, Hizbi Islami Gobadin, and actually it was Hizbi Islami Hekmardir, which would break into two groups: Hizbi Islami Gobadin and Hizbi Islami Khalis. And both of those groups recruited heavily from the Pashtun, from the southeast and the central Ghazni area. And then on the yeah the Herakadi Inquilab, which was a Pashtun dominated tri or uh, party and you then you had several what they called independent mujahideen parties from the south particularly from the southwest which were more tribally affiliated i mean you had all these different groups that were forming as little militias uh, who wanted to preserve their islam fiqh and they wanted to preserve their tribal traditions while also fighting the common enemy which was the USSR or the communism. And so by the time Carmel was put in power, it was already too late. Uh, these Mujahideen parties were forming. The leaders uh, were already in the South. Uh, you remember the religious leaders that had been pushed out of Kabul. They, they had been forming coalitions with their tribes under their Islam in Afghanistan. And when the Soviet Union came in after killing the Ming, they sent 10 divisions in because the army had been fractured by that time, so they needed to support the, the Republican Army, which was kindness. So they sent in 10 divisions so that the Republic Army could, didn't have to guard its supply bases and, and the lines of communication. Right? It could focus on fighting the insurgency, which is now all these different Mojadeen groups. But the army is only about a half of the size it had been um, before. So as it broke apart, um, it also became more specialized. The commando part of it became bigger and bigger and bigger. The commandos were specifically trained by the Spetsnaz and the GRU of the of the Soviets, um, and that became the elite unit, about a hundred thousand. Uh, and those guys would go around, and, and they were the guys that were assassinating mullahs and this and. The Had also was developed. Had was the secret police. It was the, if you think of the FBI and CIA together, that had that had been created. That's an acronym, K H A D. And if you want me to tell you the Afghan word, I can't, because I can't pronounce it um, that well. And so, uh, but everybody called it Had, the Had. It became a word in itself. And they were the secret police, and you know the Spetsnaz, or they were trained by the uh, KGB and the GRU, and and so they were out killing people too. So they had a lot of people out killing people, particularly the Mujahideen. 
and they had their army around the country and you know they the techniques that they would use kind of like this if they knew a village of a Calais of about five or six buildings uh, Calais is a, a house with a big fence around it you know it's, and the house is actually built into the fence with a courtyard in the middle and that's in the, where they plant stuff right uh, or they hold their sheep uh, it's like a little fortress it's like a family fortress mm-hmm. Well, when you have five or six together, if somebody was considered a Mojadeen in that group, a Mojadeen fighter, of which there are about 300,000 by that time, then they would just carpet bomb that that group of that whole village. And then as everybody left, they would collect the men, arrest them, and then send the women and children to refugee camps. Um, and that's how the refugee camps around the perimeter of Afghanistan became so big, with a lot of women and a lot of young children. Meanwhile, the men would kind of disappear. So um, they were using that technique all over the country, in fact. Um, and it wasn't going over very well. And the Mojadin just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so Carmel stayed in power. And he was trying to do political things as well to try to appease people. Because eventually they figured out was that they weren't going to win this way. And so the Soviet Union started backing off. And also by this time, the Soviet Union was starting to go broke. I mean, Carmel only was in power for six years. And in that time, um, that entire time, the Soviet Union was looking at, I mean, they were all about ready to dissolve. Because they were fighting a war against Reagan in other parts of the world. Um, By about 1988... Uh, the Soviet Union knows that they're going. They're they're going to be gone, right? So they're dissolving. So they're they're getting ready to leave. Um, Carmel is never going to be accepted by the population. They know that once the Soviet Union leaves, the government's going to have to change. So they put in an interim government led by a guy named Najibullah. Najibullah had been the director of the Had of the secret police. I mean. <laughs> So they put the guy who had been the director of the HAD, the secret police, into the the presidency of this new... Well, why? Well, because he trusted him and because he's a good friend and he was a good Muslim and he was a good communist. That's why. He spoke Russian very well. I mean, hey, he's a good ally. You know, he's a good guy. So they put him into the presidency, the interim government. He stays in power until 92 because in 92 the Soviet Union had dissolved, now it's Russia, and Russia can't afford to pay anymore. They stopped the payments. Once the payments stop, <coughs> Najibula can't keep all the elites <coughs> in the positions in government. I mean, they leave. So all the ministers, all the generals, all the, uh, the you know, the 2% that, that run everything in a centralized government, they all book. They take their money and they run. They see the writing on the wall and they don't want to be around for it. So they go to Russia, they go to U.S., they go to France, you know, they go, they go to Europe, they go wherever they had built, because they had all built a, a getaway plan, right? They all had a an exit plan, and they just enacted it, and they all left. Once they left, the government totally collapsed because all the workers would come to work, but, like, no one was there. I mean, they had built this big centralized government, and the ministers and the president and the generals are in charge of everything. You know, 96% of the GDP came from the USSR or from other places. It disappears, and now the people who controlled everything leave. And so there's no one to control anything. The government totally destroys. The rank and file come to work a couple of days. About the fourth or fifth day, they just don't bother. And they go home. All the privates come to work. There's nobody there. They all go home. They all go back to their their families. They all go back to the places. And they end up joining the Mojahedin. Why? Because when there's no government, then everybody runs to take the vacuum that the government left open. So you had Jamid Islami march from the north to take, you know, the... Well, the inter- the new interim government was turned over to to the uh, Mujahideen government, and it wasn't very peaceful. And then you had the different leaders of the different Mujahideen parties start competing each other for power. And um, 
Jamiat was probably the biggest at that time um, because they were the best organized from the north with the minority tribes, so they took a lot of the power and they ended up taking the presidency uh, without any voting, without any elections. They just took it. Well, Hekmardir from the south, who was a Pashtun, uh, took a front to that. And so, you know, he he basically mobilized a Pashtun army, which was about as big as what the uh, the Uzbek Sazar and the Tajiks could put together, and they all fought for Kabul. And, you know, initially, uh, Rabani made himself the interim president and appointed Hekmardir as, like, the secretary the minister of defense or foreign affairs or something, but whatever he gave gave him, um, Hekmardi didn't like. He wanted to be number two in the country, not, you know, number four or five. Well, you know, Jamiat was going to make this into a Tajik country, or a, a country that followed their uh, Sharia law, and Tajik dominated, right? Because that's where his allies were from Uzbeks, Hazar, Jamiat. They did ally to fight against Hekmardi for Kabul. They won, so now they're he's favoring the people that he had given power that helped him. The Pashtu are never going to allow Tajik to rule them in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is actually a Pashtun name. Um, Tajik. Most of the northern minority tribes speak a form of what's. Uh, it, uh, it's all Persian, but for, form, um, they speak a slightly different word or language, which is called Dari. And so the Pashtun speakers aren't going to allow the Dari speakers to control them in their own country named after them. Uh, so they fight for Kabul, destroy the city, absolutely destroy the city. Uh, the different ethnicities uh, change loyalty several times. Hazar has changed loyalty several times because of atrocities by one tribe or another against them. And, of course, they conducted atrocities as well. And so within their own groups, it became an ethnic battle between the Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara, and the Pashtun within the neighborhoods of, Af- of Kabul. I mean, it, it really became a really bloody, awful war that everybody wanted to stop. And out of the Southwest would come an organization, a social movement made up of students from Islam, students from the mosque, would give the people hope that someone would come and unite Afghanistan under a common law, under a common fiqh, and stop the violence in Kabul. And that movement would be called the Taliban movement. And I will start the next episode at that point. Thank you for joining me. If you like the story, let me know. And I hopefully will see you next week.